Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that this month's podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Pulse oximetry is a commonly used monitoring technology for assessing oxygen saturation and pulse rate. But for many years, traditional pulse oximetry was plagued by unreliability when it was needed most, during patient motion and low perfusion. Massimo overcame this challenge with Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET. With its ability to measure through motion and low perfusion, Massimo SET has opened new frontiers in patient monitoring during challenging conditions, helping clinicians improve patient outcomes. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now let's hear what's in the August issue of the journal. Hello, and welcome to the Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary for August 2022. This is Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. Thanks for joining us. This month's Editor's Choice is a bench evaluation of the addition of a filter to reduce exhaled aerosol during methacholine delivery for bronchopovocation testing. Subhat et al. proposed the addition of a viral filter to reduce environmental contamination as a mitigation for virus spread. They used two different nebulizers and compared the delivered dose with and without the filter in line. They found that the addition of a viral filter to the nebulizer exhalation limb did not affect methacholine dose. They suggest that routine use of a viral filter should be considered to improve pulmonary function, lab safety, and infection control measures. Jeff Haynes provides an accompanying editorial that this type of pulmonary function lab personnel protection is long overdue. Exposure to exhaled pathogens is, of course, a concern in the midst of SARS-CoV-2, but exposure to aerosolized bronchodilators may also impact caregivers. Um, Jeff reminds us that respiratory therapists who go into the profession develop asthma at a greater rate than people in other professions, and this might be our exposure to patients' exhaled medications. Cognet and others describe the use of electrical impedance tomography to identify lung strain in an ovine model of acute respiratory distress syndrome. They evaluated EIT images at a fixed tidal volume and positive end expiratory pressure from zero to 15 centimeters of water pressure in five centimeter water pressure increments. With increasing PEEP, respiratory compliance improved and driving pressure fell. The center of ventilation and the end expiratory lung impedance determined by EIT were used to develop maps of dynamic relative regional lung strain. They demonstrated that EIT showed high strain in ventral lung zones at low PEEP as a result of the overdistension of baby lung. Uh, this is not a new finding in, patient, in a model or patients with respiratory failure and alveolar collapse. Failure to use PEEP results in lack of ventilation to the areas that are already collapsed. Barbas and Amato provide an accompanying commentary. They suggest that the bedside use of dynamic strain maps in real time could guide personalized mechanical ventilation settings, reducing ventilator-induced lung injury. EIT isn't available in the United States at the moment, but EIT gives us something that other monitors don't. Esophageal pressure gives us a single pressure, plateau pressure, driving pressure. We use one variable to represent the entire lung. EIT will be the first monitor that actually lets us look at different regions of the lung during mechanical ventilation, and it shows a lot of promise, but the data is not here yet that we should use it routinely. Lee and others compared aerosol delivery from a breath-enhanced nebulizer and a vibrating mesh nebulizer placed on the inlet of the humidifier, often considered on the dry side, 
in a bench model with a heated wire circuit. Radio labeled aerosol was nebulized and the output measured in real time. They found comparable results with both devices but found that inspiratory flow and the pump flow were directly related to the delivered aerosol. There were no difference in system losses between the nebulizers. They concluded that aerosol delivery during continuous infusion and bolus delivery was comparable between devices and were determined by pump flow and the initial ventilator settings, again, mostly inspiratory flow. Placement of either nebulizer on the inlet of the humidifier reduced expiratory losses. Ariel Berlinski provides comment noting that limited, the limited study conditions and the in vitro nature of the study. He reminds us that a change in the position of the nebulizer doesn't necessarily dictate a change in our practice. Um, this is a, a, an interesting study and suggested in the future we'll always use perhaps the dry side of the humidifier for aerosol delivery and we may see in the future mesh nebulizers that are, that are breath actuated. Garcia and co-workers performed a retrospective study of the use of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation in over 13,000 subjects in the virus COVID-19 registry. This is a registry from scores of hospitals around the country. Associations of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation use with clinical outcomes were evaluated using multivariable adjusted hierarchical random effects logic regression models. They found that 60% of subjects that received conventional oxygen therapy, 21% received high-flow nasal cannula, and 7% received non-invasive ventilation. Half of the patients who were initially managed on high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation did not receive invasive ventilation. In this analysis, the initial use of high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation was not associated with intubation or mortality. This is an important aspect as there has been concern that both high-flow nasal cannula primarily and non-invasive ventilation used for too long a period of time might result in worse outcomes. Ratty and others randomized tracheostomized subjects to receive standard of care or inspiratory muscle training. Standard of care was a spontaneous breathing via a T-piece. Worker breathing metrics and outcomes were measured. Weaning time was not different between groups and weaning success was reduced in the inspiratory muscle training group. Maximal inspiratory pressure, power, and energy were all higher in patients who had the manual inspiratory muscle training. They concluded that inspiratory muscle training in this su subjects had no impact on weaning times or weaning success. Fernandez et al. measured the pressure generated in the first 100 milliseconds of inspiration, often referred to as the P.1. In subjects receiving non-invasive ventilation at home with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and obesity hypoventilation syndrome. P.1 was measured at study initiation and at six months. In the obesity hypoventilation syndrome group, P.1 did not change over the time while the COPD group had a small decrease. They concluded that COPD and air trapping were associated with greater, greater P.1 as a marker of respiratory effort and improvement in patient disease process can cause the P.1 to fall over time. Kyle and others performed a single center retrospective review of pediatric subjects with acute respiratory failure receiving invasive ventilation and non-invasive ventilation. In 170 subjects, 65 were treated successfully with non-invasive ventilation, 55 failed non-invasive ventilation, and 50 were intubated at presentation. Intubation after NIV failure occurred in less than two hours in a majority of subjects. 
of subjects meeting the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury Consensus Conference Pediatric ARDS criteria, only 14% were successfully treated with NIV. They concluded that pediatric subjects failing non-invasive ventilation did not experience longer durations of mechanical ventilation or fewer ventilator-free days. So this is a second study in this issue looking at the initial use of NIV or high-flow nasal cannula, suggesting that attempting it initially and realizing when it doesn't work doesn't result in worse outcomes. I think it is important to note here, though, non-invasive ventilation, improving ventilation in a patient with hypoxemia is rarely the answer. Faure et al. performed a retrospective study of patients with ARDS and COVID-19 who required tracheostomy and transfer to prolonged um, mechanical ventilation weaning center. In a small group of 43 subjects, time to decannulation averaged nine days. The Medical Research Council score was the only variable associated with early decannulation. Three months after admission, 40 or 93% of subjects were liberated from mechanical ventilation and 36 were able to go home. Their results suggest that the MRC score at admission predicted early cannulation and improvement in limb muscle strength recovery. Rogerson and colleagues reviewed the use of high-flow nasal cannula in pediatric subjects with bronchiolitis, asthma, and pneumonia from a large statewide database in Indiana. Over a 10-year period, high-flow nasal cannula use increased by 400% across all three diagnostic categories. Gender, race, age, and ethnicity all significantly influenced the risk of high-flow nasal cannula use. They concluded that high-flow nasal cannula use is no longer confined to treatment of bronchiolitis and that several factors impact HFNC use. Copestick and coworkers used a mixed-method retrospective analysis of pediatric subjects with respiratory failure to evaluate the use of the PALICC recommendations for use in this cohort. They compared provider recognition of ARDS and the use of lung protective ventilation therapies and outcomes. In nearly 2,000 subjects, they found that 16% of subjects met the def definition of ARDS, but only 30% of those were identified as having ARDS by the providers. Older age, severe hypoxemia, and bone marrow transplant recipients were more commonly identified as having ARDS. Lung protective practices did not differ based on provider recognition. They concluded that pediatric ARDS was common, but only recognized in minority of cases. Um, this remains a significant problem and limits how lung protection is provided in this population. Privateridal performed a bench study of filters added to a CPAP system delivered by a helmet interface. They used two different Venturi CPAP systems at variable flow and inspired oxygen concentrations. Filters were placed at the flow source and at the helmet inlet port. The addition of the filters resulted in a fall in total flow anywhere from 1 to 13 percent with a resulting increase in FiO2 of about 5%. They suggest that if filters are used, FiO2 should be monitored and flow adjusted to maintain patient comfort. I don't think these results are surprising um, in the face of a Venturi system and downstream increased downstream resistance. Entrainment falls, FiO2 increases, and total flow decreases. The New Horizons Symposium reviewed lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic and include reviews of shortages and vulnerabilities of hospital oxygen systems, the use of prone positioning in ventilated as well as non-ventilated subjects, also referred to as awake prone positioning, and concerns regarding aerosol generating procedures and virus transmission in the care of these patients. 
Swingwood contributes a narrative review of mechanical insufflation exsufflation use in critically ill subjects during invasive ventilation. They found that the main barrier to MIE use in critically ill subjects was a lack of knowledge and skills by caregivers. This is an area ripe for investigation and the current lack of evidence precludes recommendations related to best practices. Of all the therapies that respiratory therapists perform to try to improve secretion clearance, MIE, in an attempt to simulate a cough, probably is the one that has the best physiologic basis. Of course, we're not gonna do mechanical insufflation, exsufflation in a patient on 15 a peep with hypoxemia. But there are other patients who are invasively ventilated who may benefit as much as patients with neuromuscular disease benefit at home. We appreciate you tuning in to the Editor's Commentary and Respiratory Care Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you in the journal. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.